If you've taken the elevator or escalator or climbed the stairs up to the raised terrace before the entrance to the Albertina Museum, you're now looking out over Albertina Platz, Albertina Square. The name is taken from the museum, the world's largest collection of graphics, with a permanent collection of more than one million pieces ranging from early 16th century Dürer prints to watercolors by Monet, oils by Van Gogh, Renoir, and Picasso, and pastels by Degas, to more modern works in a range of media, all displayed among the plush, original 19th century empire-style staterooms. Once a residential wing of the Hofburg Imperial Palace, the museum takes its name from the favorite son-in-law of Empress Maria Theresa, Prince Albert Casimir of Saxony and Duke of Teschen. He's the one on the equestrian statue before the museum's entrance, looking out over the rear end of the state opera. Among the men who married Empress Maria Theresa's 11 daughters, Albert was the only one whose match was not arranged as part of larger dynastic strategy. His position was relatively weak by Habsburg standards, and his territories were politically unstable. But Albert had an advantage over other potential suitors. He and the Empress's favorite daughter, Maria Christina, were deeply in love. And in 1766, they were allowed to marry, embittering two of Maria Christina's sisters, who had been forced to wed men that they didn't love to serve the family's political ambitions and who developed a resentment against their mother that kept them estranged for the rest of her life. But Empress Maria Theresa was unabashed in her favoritism for Maria Christina, an affection that extended to her new spouse. The couple enjoyed generous gifts of properties, yearly allowances, staff, furnishings, and art from the Empress, and, in addition to a number of other titles, Albert was given the governorship of the Austrian Netherlands, which he ruled from a palace in Brussels, all the while pursuing his passion for collecting art. In 1786, the increasing political tension of the lead-up to the French Revolution forced the couple to flee back to Vienna. Albert sent his extensive art holdings in three ships. Only two of them survived the journey. These became the seed of the collection that continued to grow over the last four decades of his life. After Albert's death in 1822, his nephew and heir, Archduke Karl of Teschen, the Napoleonic war hero depicted on Heldenplatz, opened the collection to the public, a wholly unconventional decision considering that most art collections at the time were only accessible to royalty or nobility. But the only prerequisite for a visit to Albert's extensive collection was that the public came über eigene Schuhe, wearing their own shoes. The price of admission has increased since then. As you can see, the museum has undergone its share of modernization. Above you, for instance, stretches the controversial 64-meter or 210-foot modern titanium Saravia wing designed by architect Hans Hollein. This is just the most recent of the palace's long history of renovations. In fact, the museum is perched 12 meters above street level now because it was incorporated into the old medieval city bastions after the first Turkish siege in 1529 which gives you an idea of the wall that surrounded the first district until the mid-19th century. But most of the structure's updating isn't visible from the street. Between 1996 and 2003, the museum closed its doors completely to the public in order to construct a sophisticated temperature and moisture-controlled safe deep below street level. Because excavations for this vault uncovered 130 original Roman graves dating back to the 2nd and 3rd century AD, construction was seriously delayed. 
Roman artifacts are often found throughout the city during the course of construction, and due to their historical value, they must be excavated by archaeologists before work can continue. Below the museum stretches a cobbled triangle of land, bordered by a small green park on the northwest side. This is the footprint of what used to be a large building called the Philipphof, which contained 220 small apartments. During the Second World War, the basement of the building was outfitted as a bomb shelter, and the residents and others in the area were instructed to take cover there during air raids. In 1945, shortly before the end of the war, Allied forces mounted several bombing raids on Vienna, and about 300 people, mostly women and children, fled to the basement of the building. Unfortunately, the structure was not as strong as they supposed, and the building collapsed. Due to a lack of resources and manpower, the remains could not be excavated, and the exact number of victims is still unknown. The bodies rest there to this day. Now this space functions as a memorial. The marble sculptural group was completed in 1991 by artist Alfred Herdlichka and consists of four carved monoliths. The two at the south end of the square, called the Gates of Violence, represent between them the Holocaust and the horrors of war and fascism. Together they form a gateway and are situated atop granite pedestals taken from the rock quarry of Austria's largest concentration camp, Mauthausen. Midway across the square is another rough-hewn sculpture, this one representing the mythological figure of Orpheus entering the underworld to retrieve his beloved Eurydice from the realm of the dead. Behind it stands the Stone of the Republic, another piece of granite from the Mauthausen Quarry, inscribed with selections from the Austrian Declaration of Independence from April 27, 1945. But one of these monuments stands, or rather kneels, apart from the others. The lone bronze sculpture, called Der Kniende und Straßenwaschende Jude, is meant to represent a Jewish man forced into the humiliating act of scrubbing the street. The figure itself is rather unassuming. In fact, so many people apparently mistook it for a simple lump of bronze that the stylized barbed wire had to be added later in order to keep them from sitting on it but its inconspicuousness was intentional on the part of the artist. According to Herdlichka, the horrors of what happened in the concentration camps were too distant from the personal experience of the Viennese. He had little faith in locals investing the energy needed to imagine the experience of the Holocaust's victims. So instead, he decided to evoke a specific event that they witnessed firsthand, a moment that happened before their eyes during the Nazi rise to power in 1938, whose memory would function as an accusatory reminder of their complicity as silent witnesses. Understanding why Herdlichka chose this figure specifically as an indictment of the Viennese requires a brief look at the political situation in the lead-up to the Nazi annexation. See, members of Vienna's Jewish population weren't just scrubbing the streets. They were scrubbing something off of the streets. In early March of 1938, the Austrian government was in a state of upheaval. The Chancellor of the Republic, Kurt Schuschnigg, had assumed power after the assassination of his predecessor, Engelbert Dollfuss, by German Nazis only a few years before. Schuschnigg, a member of the anti-Semitic Christian Social Party, was desperate to keep Austria independent from Germany and had made a number of increasingly large concessions to Nazi sympathizers in an effort to prevent the annexation. 
These included the appointment of German Nazis to key positions within the Austrian government, including Otto Seiss Inkwart as Minister of Public Security, giving him full control of the Austrian police. With full-throated support from inside Austria's own government, and with Hitler declaring that Germany was, quote, no longer willing to tolerate the suppression of 10 million Germans across its borders, the Nazis were successfully reframing the annexation as a reunification of a shared cultural heritage, one split by arbitrary borders drawn in the peace talks of the First World War. This narrative continued to gain popular support in Austria, and in a failing effort to appease his constituents while hoping to avoid the impending German takeover, Schuschnigg announced a referendum in which the people would vote on whether the Austrian government would allow German annexation on March 13th. In the lead-up to the referendum, anti-Nazi Austrians and members of the city's Jewish community took to the streets, painting pro-independence graffiti on walls, cobblestones, and pavement throughout the city. Hitler, not wanting to risk the referendum leaning toward Austrian independence, launched a media campaign through the German Ministry of Propaganda, announcing that the election was fraudulent, issuing alarmist press reports of rioting throughout Austria, fabricating Austrian calls for the German troops to restore order, and urging Schuschnigg's resignation and replacement by Seiss Ingwart. The referendum was canceled and the Wehrmacht marched across the Austrian border on the morning of March 12th, unchallenged by the Austrian military and police. On May 15th, he arrived in Vienna and delivered a speech on Heldenplatz, in which he denounced the press as liars, emphasized the size and enthusiasm of the crowds who came out to see him, and described himself as Austria's liberator. Directly thereafter, Nazi officers imprisoned Schuschnigg and rounded up members of the local Jewish population, forcing them to scrub away the anti-Nazi slogans they had painted only days earlier. The debasement and abuse suffered by Vienna's Jewish community only worsened from this point. Within a month, Hitler announced a plebiscite to lend an air of legitimacy to the annexation. Though there is no question that both the ballots and the processing of them were manipulated, the Nazi party did unquestionably enjoy substantial, genuine support in Austria. And it was these supporters who sculptor Alfred Herdlichka wanted to speak to with his street-cleaning Jew. Until the memorial to Austria's Jewish victims of the Holocaust was unveiled on Judenplatz in 2000, this bronze sculpture was the city's only monument to serve that function. Famed survivor and Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal objected to what he saw as an undignified portrayal of Austria's Jewish victims and spearheaded the effort that ultimately led to the creation of the official Holocaust Memorial. If you'd like to visit the Holocaust Memorial and learn more about Vienna's historical Jewish community, check out my episode on Judenplatz. Finally, a visit to Albertina Platz wouldn't be complete without a brief mention of the culinary attractions of this square. Across from the Albertina Museum, occupying the plot directly behind the state opera, you'll find the world-famous Hotel Sacha. Curiously, during the city's occupation after the Second World War, the Russian cavalry thought so highly of this exclusive hotel that they used it as their stables. But it's since been restored to its original opulent splendor, and of course there's a local legend surrounding the origin of this Austrian culinary landmark. 
In 1832, the formidable Prince Metternich, a Viennese politician who was widely feared for his secret police force, restrictions on speech, and other oppressive policies, threw a party. For the occasion, he ordered his head chef to concoct a new dessert that would amaze him and his guests. But the poor chef couldn't function under the immense pressure and called in sick on the big day. So the task fell to his 16-year-old assistant, Franz, who had only completed one year of apprenticeship and was a bit shaky on the exact amount of sugar to use and the right ratios of wet to dry ingredients. What he whipped up was a dry, rather bland, two-layer chocolate cake. But he added apricot jam between the two layers and a smooth chocolate glaze on top in order to improve the cake's flavor, and to cut some of its dryness, he served it with unsweetened whipped cream. To Franz's surprise, the tort delighted all of the guests, even the hard-nosed Prince Metternich, because it was so different from the heavy, cloying, overly sweet desserts of the day. Word of the new dessert spread quickly, and people came in droves to buy the cake directly from the hotel. Young Franz Sacha steadily climbed his way up through the kitchen hierarchy, eventually becoming head chef, acquiring several cafes and restaurants, and buying this hotel. His son's wife later fostered his legacy, eventually renaming the entire hotel after him. Alongside Wiener Schnitzel and Apfelstrudel, Sacha Torte is a dish nearly synonymous with Vienna, to the point that you'll find versions of it in nearly every bakery window and dessert menu in the city. If you opt to try it at the cafe of the Sacha Hotel, you might pay a euro or two more, but you'll get the only one that can legally claim to be the original. A legal case between the Sacha and the former court confectioner, Demel, was needed to settle that dispute in the late 1930s. And since then, every slice served by Sacha has come with a chocolate medallion bearing the title Original Sacha Torte. The last point of interest on this square is the small stand in front of the Albertina facade, designed by the same architect who created the giant titanium wing jutting out over the museum. You've probably noticed these Würstelstände, sausage stands, other places around town, and they all serve up pretty much the same options, but this one, Bitzinger, is special for a couple of reasons. In addition to serving up some of the best sausages in the city, according to local polls, this stand is also the only one to offer champagne, chilled and perfectly timed for intermission at the state opera. While the stand does offer a handful of vegetarian options, the sausages themselves are all pork products. And while the menu may seem overwhelming, here are the basics. Debrezina and Klobasa are spicy. Sacherwürstel and Bratwurst are mild. Waldviertler are smoked. And Käsekreiner have cheese inside. If you ask for it hot dog style, it will be shoved into a heated baguette with ketchup, mustard, sweet or spicy, and even fresh horseradish if you want it. All contained, ready to eat, and relatively free of mess. Otherwise, it'll be served cut up on a paper tray with a piece of rye bread and a tiny fork. As far as beverages go, the perfect complement to any local sausage is a can of Ottakringer, the beer produced in Vienna's 16th district. If you're brave enough to give some Viennese dialect a whirl, try ordering a Käsekreiner, that's the one with the cheese inside, cut up with rye bread and an Ottakringer beer, like this. Ich hätte gern a Eitrige mit einem Buckel und einem Sechseiner Blech. 
literally translated, you just asked very politely for a pus finger with a humpback and a 16th tin. The next episode covers the Wiener Staatsoper, the Vienna State Opera, the back of which is visible from the Albertina Terrace. The Opera House is the large, freestanding building with a loaf-shaped green roof just kitty-corner from the Albertina Platz sausage stand. Feel free to walk all the way around the opera if you're eager to check out the architecture close up, but if you want to spare yourself the extra steps, just enjoy the next episode from your current vantage point. Afterwards, our route takes us down the Operngasse and past the front of the building anyway, so you won't be missing out on a chance to see its front end.